Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. I like a story of a rich businessman, and he found a fisherman sitting behind next to a boat, and he wasn't doing anything. And he said, why aren't you out there fishing? And the fisherman said, because I've caught enough fish for today. And he said, well, why don't you catch more fish than you need? I mean, don't you need more? You always need. The man said, well, what, what would I do with them? He said, you could earn more money. That's what the rich guy said. You could buy a better boat so you can go deeper and catch more fish. And then you could buy nylon nets and catch even more fish and make even more money. And then you'd have a fleet of boats and you'd be rich like me. The fisherman asked then, what would I do? And the rich guy said, well, then you could sit down and enjoy life. And of course, the fisherman looked out with a kind of a sense of satisfaction and he said, what do you think I'm doing now? A lot of people have that kind of love-hate relationship with money. Many of us love money, the good things that it can buy, that it can accomplish. I mean, listen, I love that we can use it to, to provide for the needs of our family. I'm glad for that. I, I love how it can be used. Money can be used to support the work of God and his kingdom in the world, right? Through missions and ministry, through committed, cheerful givers, and that's good. But I also hate I don't know about you, I also hate the way money can be captive, can really, really get a hold of us and uh, not let go. It's almost as if you're in bondage to money sometimes. It's so top of mind. It's so pervasive. In fact, it's really tempting to, uh, to misuse. And I hate how quickly it goes in and then it goes out, right? You have this endless barrage of bills that come across your, I was going to say your desk, but now I guess it's a computer screen. Is, is that the way to think of it? And you think, you know, there's never, there's just never enough. Uh, no less a theologian than Mick Jagger once said, I can't get no satisfaction. You know what? I think he was right. I think it's true. And that's kind of like the clarion call, I think, of our generation today. It's very consumer driven. Um, in fact, that's how advertising works. I don't know if you know that. I used to sell and be involved in the broadcast and advertising business years ago. And the advertising business has a goal. Sell products or services online through broadcasting, television, radio, print. Show you how attractive a product or service is that can theoretically fix or improve your life in order to buy things you don't need with money you don't really have. That's really the business. That's what it's about. And that's why money is both a joy and a burden. I think it's like a shackle. In fact, you may not know this, but Americans are diving deeper and deeper into the red bondage. Total credit card debt in this country is at its record highest point ever. It surpassed $1 trillion at the end of last year. Consumer debt overall is currently at $4 trillion in America. Our government, you know, is in astronomical debt. In fact, I can't even fathom the number right now. It's so, it's so outrageous. I don't even know what it is. I can't keep track of it. So, and by the way, income and wages are not keeping up with the cost of living either for many. 
So if there was ever a time that we needed to follow, to learn biblical wisdom on money management, that time is now. And that's why we're beginning this really brief three-week series called Finance Matters today. Because I think we need to live and learn biblically-based finance or money management to help us overcome these challenges with money we're dealing with today. And some of you may not know also, this book that I hold here is about 1,200 pages, more or less, and it contains over 2,300 scriptures on money and possessions. In fact, our Lord Jesus talked more about money than heaven or hell combined. 15% of his preaching is estimated to be about money. In fact, the third, 11 of his 39 parables are about money. So like the old E.F. Hutton commercial, even more so, when the Bible talks money, we better listen. I really think so. Never more clearly than in the context here is money spoken about, about the attitude about it. This is one of the most often quoted scriptures in all of the Bible. In fact, it's one of the most often quoted sentences in the world by non-Christians who know what it means when they say the love of money is the root of all evil, right? That's found here. This is the Apostle Paul's first letter to a young apprentice, a young pastor at the church of Ephesus named Timothy, all right? He was charged with leading, feeding, protecting a local church. This is the final chapter of the letter. So he's warning this young man about what I think is a disease that's threatening the church and any church, any body of believers to come. That disease is diagnosed as the love of money. It's being the root of all kinds of evils. And the way the disease was carried into the church, this was interesting, was by false teachers that were coming into the church, causing division, disarray, because they were greedy, because they were discontent. And in fact, verses 4 and 5, just above the text, were teaching and thought that godliness is a means of gain. Wow. Godliness is gain, they thought but gain as in money. And that reminds me of a movement today that many of you may have heard or even been involved with at many times. Um, at one time in your life, a number of preachers and teachers and churches are involved in it, and it's called the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth or name it and claim it movement. And it is estimated one out of every five professing Christians are in such a church. And you probably know what it's about because it's relevant to this text. You know what it's about if you've ever read a Joel Osteen book or heard a Creflo Dollar seminar. By the way, that is singularly the most inappropriate name for a preacher I've ever heard. Or if you've seen Benny Hinn or Ken Copeland on TBN or the internet, what it is is it's a movement that teaches that if you speak the word of God in faith, basically you can have literally anything you want. The best parking spot? in a crowded parking garage. You can get a first-class seat on a crowded plane that way. Priority seating in restaurants. You can get the car, the house, the vacation of your dreams. 
If you name it and claim it, whatever you want, simply speak the word of God in or out of context. It doesn't matter. And God is actually obligated to make it come to pass. Kenneth Copeland said, quote, as a believer, you have a right to make commands in the name of Jesus. Each time you stand on the word, you're commanding God to a certain extent because it is his word, end quote. And Frederick Price said, yes, you are in control. God can do anything on this earth unless we let him or give him permission through prayer, end quote. I'm really not making this up. And that attitude, that's really bred a lot of greed, coveting worldliness among believers, worse among leaders of churches, pastors. There's an Instagram page I found, Juan Carlos showed me this the other day, called Preachers and Sneakers. You may have heard of that. It shows, I think it exposes, really, young hip pastors wearing outrageously priced clothing items and shoes. One pastor is shown wearing a pair of $3,500 Air Jordan sneakers on stage while he's preaching. Other pastors are wearing $900 sweatpants, an $1,800 briefcase, and one picture I did see, a preacher wearing a $6,000 T-shirt. Yeah, how can a T-shirt be $6,000? It's all in the brand, I hear. I forget what the brand is, fortunately. So, and then they, you know, they get really criticized for this, obviously, by many, but they claim that they don't buy this, these clothes and ostentatious items and everything. They're simply given to them by church members or by the companies themselves. Really uh, good Christian companies like Gucci, Louis Vuitton, um, that kind of thing. So it's materialism, the love of money. You see it there. And that's what infected the church big time 2,000 years ago to the extent Paul gives a diagnosis and then a cure of this disease of the love of money. He does it in reverse order, actually, in the text. So I'm going to reverse that so we can talk about the diagnosis first, like a good doctor should, and then give you the cure that he's got here. So let's look at the diagnosis of the disease of the love of money. Verses 9 and 10, where Paul says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Money, let me say this. Money is not an evil in and of itself. It's just paper with a numerical value attached to it, all right? Cash and coins are morally neutral. They're inanimate objects. There's nothing wrong with having money. I'll even go as far as to say there's nothing wrong with having lots of it if, if, if it's earned, consumed, and spent wisely and in a godly way. There are godly, well-to-do people all over the Bible. You know that, right? Job stacked a lot of paper in his time. Abraham, the other patriarchs. Solomon, arguably, King Solomon may have been the richest man in the history of the world. New Testament people, Joseph of Arimathea, a Jew who donated his tomb for the burial of Jesus Christ. So it's the love or the affection for money and what it can buy that's the problem. The problem is, according to this text, it's that it becomes your greatest affection, being rich or, or being affluent. 
which literally from the Greek has the idea an abundance of outward possessions. Paul says there's a trap in that, temptation, that can lead you to all kinds of foolish and, and hurtful things. It can, because of our fleshly lusts. That's cravings. Paul says it can sink you into ruin and destruction. And that word, that Greek word for destruction, really doesn't do it justice just in English. The Greek word has the idea of perdition, condemnation, meaning eternal misery in hell. Who's the poster boy of this disease from that perspective? It's Judas. That's another one. Judas, the banker of the 12. He held the money purse, right? He sold Jesus out for how much money? You know what 30 pieces of silver is? By today's dollar value, comparatively speaking, $600. Judas sold the king of the universe for $600. That was the cost of his soul. How does that happen? The love of money. It's the evil. Love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Evil meaning literally that's things that are base and wicked. And it's a kind of craving, greediness that has seduced people, where it says wandered away here from the faith, and they pierced themselves with many pangs, which was a metaphor, that phrase, for someone that tortured their own soul. And they were in grief and sorrow over it, like, like Judas and like someone else. Very familiar person comes to my mind if you turn to Luke chapter 18 in your Bibles or make a note there to go there later with the very familiar story of the rich young ruler. This man wants to be saved. He, he asked the right question of Jesus. How, how can I be saved? And Jesus, knowing his heart, says, well, just keep all the commandments. Have you kept all the commandments? And he gives a few which he thought he had kept, horizontal relational commandments. And, of course, the Lord knew he was lying. No one's kept the Ten Commandments kept them consistently, and Jesus knew he was a coveter at heart, so he asked him, all right, you the real deal? Come follow me. And look what happened in that story, verse 23 of Luke 18. But when he heard these things, the rich young ruler, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a what? A camel to go through the eye of the needle, that's hard, than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That's what the love of money can do, people. It can actually send some people to hell because they love it that much more. That's why Jesus said earlier in his ministry, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? This is what Paul's saying in diagnosing this condition in this text. Now, what are the kinds of evil? What are the kind of sins that come from the love of money? Well, we mentioned greed, coveting is one. And the other ones are very obvious, right? If you love money, you're just that much more likely to lie, cheat, steal, and even kill for money. You'll wage war. Nations wage war over money. You're familiar with the story, of course, of Ananias and Sapphira, right? We're not sure to this day whether they believers or not, but they were congregating with the early church in Jerusalem. They lied to the Holy Spirit 
They held back this, the money from the proceeds of the sale of the house they were going to donate that they had committed to the church in Acts 5. What happened to them for doing that? God killed them on the spot in what is the most severe case of church discipline ever recorded. It was the lie over the money. And then talking about real born-again Christians, by the way, the love of money impacts us for sure. It not only leads to greed, it'll kill the closest relationships that you have. James 4.2 says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, meaning we don't ask God for the right thing. So this love of money and the sin is so pervasive, folks, it can actually impact your day-to-day relationships, whether you're married or not. This goes beyond prosperity gospel teachers. It really comes down to a matter of priorities. What do you value most? What do you think about the most? There's a sarcastic website, kind of a satirical website. I read once in a while called the Babylon Bee. It's got some clever stuff. Had this headline recently. Local Christian Lance Ryan announced Monday he will be content in all things and completely satisfied in Christ right after he places one more massive Amazon order for a bunch of stuff he doesn't need. Quote, it's important for Christians to be content, he said, as he threw a backup Xbox One into his cart. And I'll definitely be content right after this shipment comes in. Oh, man, I can't wait till my new smartphone shows up and fills this gaping void in my soul. Ryan says he's always happy as long as I know there's a bunch of fun stuff coming my way from Amazon. He makes sure to have a constant stream of stuff coming from Amazon at any given time, whether it's appliances, electronics, books, games, sports equipment, or accessories to supplement some of the other stuff he's bought. Quote, Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, he added, and it looks like my heart is currently shipping from Amazon's nearby fulfillment center. Come on, Amazon, driver, hurry up, he says. At publishing time, Ryan had passed, placed a second massive Amazon order while waiting for the first one to show up to ensure he was extra content. Now, I have to tell you, that account is fictional. That's what the Babylon Bee is about. But I think it's pretty representative of a number of people, for sure. So who's your master? Think today. Money? Or Messiah. Jesus had something to say about that as well in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6. Very familiar, but bears hearing the Lord's words on this. Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And of course, verse 21 As you go up, it says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That doesn't need a lot of explanation. Money is not the only area of our lives, by the way, we should be careful about. Loving God, causing root of other evil to form. Today, it can be exercise. You know that. Our bodies can be a source of idolatry. Love of body. Today, there's a lot of attention paid to health and exercise, dieting, vanity, how we look. You got the explosion of plastic surgery for people. And that can definitely become an obsession, folks. 
It can be source of idolatry. Paul knew it back at that time, by the way, before they had Jim's and Jenny Craig. They really did. If you go back to chapter 4 in this letter, verse 8, Paul wrote to Timothy and said, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So the, but the immediate context of our scripture today is the love of money. In fact, church leaders were to be chosen based on their character, and one of the characteristics being they were free from the love of money. That's in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. The love of money, listen, is not only the root of all kinds of evil, it's rooted in the fundamental sin of covetousness or greed. It's essentially the same thing, those two words. Listen, all of you live in two tents. You live in two tents. You either live in the tent of content or discontent. That's just the love of money is what it is. So that's the diagnosis. We're going to spend the rest of our time in the cure for this disease. Look at verses 6 to 8 in the text. Verse 6 and 7, Paul writes, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. Stop there. He began that article there, but. So that's the connection from, that goes back before verse 6 in this sinful idea of contrasting the greed of false teachers that was being embraced. So the real key to understanding the secret of satisfaction, as I'm calling this message today, the secret to financial peace and freedom, is really bound up in two words, godliness and contentment. Godliness and contentment. The rich, by the way, are not always godly. You're going to find out the godly are always rich. Remember that. Remember who owns your money. Who owns what you have, including your work even, your job. Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 8, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. So, on the positive side of defining satisfaction here, we're going to start with godliness, that word, which literally in the Greek is really better translated as holiness, righteousness works as a synonym. What godliness is, is having a constant awareness of God, and that would be an antidote or a cure for the disease of coveting, greed that we just talked about. Coveting is, again, lustful craving or hunger for something material, stuff you don't yet have, and maybe somebody else might have it, which then breeds jealousy and envy. It's stuff that you want even more than Jesus sometimes. So it's really a faith issue because unbelief is evident here. It's a lack of trust in God's provision and his providence, and it's a lack of love for Christ to the extent that you want more and more and more because Christ may not be your greatest treasure right now. So that could breed an attitude of coveting in your heart. And it's a, it's a kind of unbelief, folks. This is even worse. It can lead to something worse. That is the sin of idolatry. Coveting can lead to idolatry because don't you know that money and stuff are idols of worship for people? Millions of people, particularly in countries like the United States, which happens to be the most prosperous, materialistic nation in the world. So what am I saying in relation to this text? The love of money is at the root of the sin of not only coveting, but idolatry, which coveting is just the opposite of contentment. Because coveting 
is idolatry because it wants things more than God. Paul made this connection really well. Colossians 3.5 says this, talking about new believers. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. His words. And another theologian found this same connection. Interesting way I hadn't noted before in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments begin and end the same way, talking about coveting and idolatry. The first commandment from Exodus 20, verse 3 is, you shall have no other gods before me. And the last one is, you shall not covet. Chapter 20, verse 17, they're bookends. So how do you find godliness? Well, you have to flee and you have to pursue. Flee from coveting and pursue what? Look after this text in verses 11 and 12. Paul says to the man of God, flee these things. He's talking about the love of money and its sins. Pursue righteousness. Here it is again. Godliness, faith. That's huge. Love, steadfastness, gentleness. Verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith. That's what eternal life, he says, it's about. There's like six attitudes there, and they all intersect around one word. The one word is faith. Faith or trust in God, his promises, and in his provision. Because it is contentment that kills covetousness. It really does. That's the big idea I want you to come away with today. Go to Philippians chapter 4. Great parallel passage from Paul, similar to what we have in 1 Timothy. Again, from Paul's pen. He's writing from jail, by the way. He's in a prison in Rome writing to this Philippian church, and he's joyful. And they've given him a great gift. The Philippian church members have really poured out a great offering for him while he's in prison. And listen to what he says in response to that. Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. He begins by saying, that Now, not that I am speaking of being in need, he's in jail. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be what? I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned, here it is, the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through him is Christ who strengthens me. Do you get the context of that verse now? Because that's been a name it, claim it verse forever. Celebrities all over the place are wearing Philippians 4.13. I can, I can be a hit entertainer and do all these kinds of things. I can fly like a bird. I can do all kinds of things who Christ who strengthens me. has nothing to do with that at all. It has everything to do with the fact that you can be brought low, high, in need, and do what God has called you to do. That's the context of that verse. So it, it, it fits another biblical definition of contentment. I want you to know that, which is this. Contentment is an internal satisfaction which does not demand changes in external circumstances. Did you get that? Because that's what Paul's talking about in his ministry when he said he had very little. That means brought low. And he had much more at other times. So abound, overflow. But either way, either circumstance did not alter his contentment, his attitude about money. He was content with little, and he was content with a whole lot more. That's contentment. And it's based on faith in Christ, is what he's saying with the word godliness. If you're in Philippians 4, you go back to chapter 3, 
Very familiar text starting in verse 7. Paul said, so you get the connection here, between faith and contentment. Whatever gain I had, I counted as, the, as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. Now remember, Paul was from the tribe of Benjamin, Pharisee among Pharisees. Benjamin, he had a lot of Benjamins probably at that point in time. Paul did very, very well. And Paul is saying, for his sake, I suffered the loss of all that, counted as rubbish, garbage. All the stuff I had is garbage, contained with faith in Christ. He says, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. He, he had stacks of stuff, and he said, all this, really the Greek word is very graphic, you can translate it in English as dung. I think you know what that means. And Paul actually used that word and said, that's what that is compared to my relationship with Jesus. That's incredible. Faith knows that God owns it all. And he provides it all. And his children are going to get all that they need. Because in the same chapter, Philippians 4, verse 19 says, and my God shall supply all your needs. Did he say wants? Needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. See, the bank account may be in your name, folks, but it's not actually your money. Eventually, what goes in has to come out, right? The deed to your home may have your name printed at the top, but is it really yours? You have a mortgage? Me and Marty's name is on the deed of our house, but we know who really owns Quicken Loans owns our house. And if you rent a home, it's not really your home. You have a landlord who owns that property. You came into this world naked and empty-handed. You're going to leave this world naked and empty-handed. Job said it. Psalm 49 says it. Solomon said it. Knew a little bit about cash in Ecclesiastes 5.15 where he said, as he came from his mother's womb, and he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil or work that he may carry away in his hand. You know, uh, you've heard this old saying before. Pastor Alex brought it up in the prayer meeting. You'll never find a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You get the picture? Okay, because if you can't picture that, it doesn't really work for you. Or I might add it this way. If you can't picture that, you're not going to find pockets in your robes of righteousness in heaven. All right? Godliness of verse 6, that comes from contentment or accompanied by in the New American Standard. And that is what great gain is. Great gain there literally does mean profit or wealth, but it's the spiritual kind, and that comes first by faith. So faith kills covetousness and idolatry. Faith in Christ over money. That's the idea. It's believing Jesus is more valuable, more beautiful, more gracious than gold or silver. It's thinking on the fact that he satisfies more than anyone or anything else in the universe. Can you picture that? Because that's what the Lord presented as himself as the bread of life. John 6.35, one of those great I am statements Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never 
thirst. Now, the Lord meant more than food and water there. He's talking about true, deep soul satisfaction. That's what lasts. So faith means this, preaching to yourself, believing that a relationship with Jesus Christ alone is greater, more satisfying than anything you can physically touch, taste, or smell. It's clear. Coveting never satisfies, folks. Solomon said it himself. Again, Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Vanity means emptiness, nothingness. So quality of life, you know, the material quality of life, it's subjective. It's never enough to satisfy a coveter. Hey, what about all those rich people? They seem satisfied. Actually, no, they're not. I'm going to give you some words of millionaires, just three of them. Quote, I have made many millions, but they have brought me no happiness. Who said that? John D. Rockefeller. I am the most miserable man on earth, said John Jacob Astor. He was a businessman, a merchant, real estate mogul, investor who at one time bought up nearly all of New York City at one time. Made a fortune in fur trading too. One more. I was happier when doing a mechanic's job, said Henry Ford, the inventor of the car. And of course, our Lord Jesus said it even better in Luke 12. Beware of all covetousness, for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's just a warning from the Lord of having too much. So the cure for the disease, the love of money, we said first, to cure the disease of coveting and idolatry, which is a root of all kinds of evil from the love of money, is godliness. It comes by faith. And second and lastly, and we're done, is contentment. Contentment literally means being satisfied with the current circumstances of your life and the basic necessities of life. It's the acceptance that things are as they are from the good, loving, providential hand of God. He made you. He knows what's good for you. He so loves you. He always seeks your good. He knows what you need, and that's what he'll give you in perfect timing. Now, that said, let me say this. You shouldn't be content with everything in life. What should you be discontent with? I'll tell you. Sin. We don't want to be content with sin. Just the circumstances God's placed us in. That's different. The idea somebody said is, be content with what you have, never with what you are. That's pretty good. Be content as another theologian, I think his name was Baloo the Bear. He had it. He said bear necessities. All right? I think I've read his systematic theology. It's quite good. But even better is Hebrews 13.5, which says, keep your life from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. See, contentment with faith and trust in God to provide not only kills the love of money, but get this, it also kills anxiety or worry about money because many of us have been there if we're not there right now. Worry in the Greek has with the idea of being pulled or drawn in different directions. It can be painful. In the Old English, worry or anxiety would be defined as being strangled or choked over money. 
As you turn, I want you to turn and see something in the Sermon on the Mount again, Matthew chapter 6, one of my favorite, I think it's my favorite passage in all the Bible, actually. And there, Jesus is going to actually tell you that worrying about anything, even three hots and a cot, is sinful and hurtful. Can you believe that? He's going to tell you that because it's an issue of faith or unbelief. You know this. I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will wear, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now pause here. Jesus is talking to some of the poorest people in the history of civilization in antiquity in first century Palestine. And he's telling those people, don't worry about your food and your clothing. He gives the examples how he feeds the birds of the air. They don't sow, reap, they don't work, they don't do anything like jobs. But he says, are you not of more value than they? Because he provides for them food in the trees and what have you. And then he says in verse 27, which of you can, by being anxious or worried, can add a single hour or cubit to his span of life? What's that going to do for you? Why are you anxious about clothing? He talks about the lilies of the field. They're beautiful, and they're really like glorified weeds, and they don't spin or toil or do anything. And he says, Solomon wasn't as beautifully dressed as those, and the Lord said, I dress them. I put them out there in the field. And then he says, this is where you get the idea of lack of faith. Verse 30. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow thrown into the oven, because they would use that stuff in which to cook food in a clay oven back then, he says, how much more will he not clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, what are we going to eat, drink, or wear? The Gentiles. Jesus is speaking to largely a Jewish audience here, the chosen people, right? And he's saying, look, the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. When you've just lost a job and you're having a tough time paying a bill, does God go, didn't see that coming? Caught me by surprise. No. In fact, he's orchestrated the entire turn of events for your good and his glory because he's sovereign and working in providence which means working in the circumstances of your life. So the promise, he's actually saying, God is actually saying, I'm going to give you what you need when you need it. Here's the condition, though. It's all in verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. There it is again. Godliness, faith. And all these things will be added to you. Because you know there's people out there that, Think, you know, I know God spoke the world into creation and being, but I don't know if he can help me with the job thing. I think that may be above his pay grade. I don't think God can help me with the provision in three hots and a cot. Are you kidding, really? God can do all that, and he can't do the lesser thing, which is give you what you need, which is why finally the verse 34 says, therefore, because of everything I've told you, the promise, the purposes, the provision I can give you, Therefore, don't be anxious or worried about tomorrow because tomorrow is going to be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Listen, very simple translation. 
There's enough hassles and stuff to deal with today rather than worry about tomorrow. That's what he's saying. So that can only come in an attitude of contentment. Contentment comes from dependence, not from independence. And that's dependence on God to provide for you and keep you, and that by faith you can be content or satisfied. The practical applications of this are many, and we'll talk about some in a moment before we close. Contentment means if you've really got contentment, you're going to have real grace and joy and peace about money in your life because you're not loving it. You're not obsessing over it. If you've got a lot, great. If you don't, like Paul, it doesn't change. If you're not obsessing about money and you're content with it, you can hold it loosely. It's easier to give it like God wants us to. You give to get to give again. And if you've got that attitude that comes with contentment, you can do that. Giving is not a problem. You know, by percentage, most of the best, most consistent givers in a local church are the people that have less, not more. Because people that have more can direct it to all these other places they feel like directing it to. People that have less understand oftentimes through contentment what their priorities are, who their real treasure is. And it pays off, folks. Because you might be thinking, okay, where's, where's the payoff here? Uh, giving, being content with money pays the greatest dividends in the world. The Bible says so, Proverbs eleven twenty four. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Solomon's in that. And that goes to the other secret of contentment here. You ready? I'm going to be honest with you. A non-Christian by definition, cannot be content. Everything I've told you the last several minutes is meaningless to you if you're not a Christian. You can't. It's irresistible. The temptation of the flesh, if you are unredeemed, is too great by and large. You can do it temporarily, but finally in the end you'll cave in to the love of money, material stuff, coveting, and greed. If you're unredeemed, you cannot say no. You just can't. This is a spiritual thing. Because the contentment goes against the flesh. It's antithetical to your nature. You need, a, therefore, a new nature. And a new nature comes by turning to God and trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation. It's just gospel. The great Puritan teacher, Thomas Watson, he put it this way, quote, the more invisible, eternal things above grip our heart, the less will be the power of the visible, temporal things of the world to cause us discontent. And that ties into, again, the primary way. Here's another primary way to have a secret of satisfaction in your heart contentment. Have a gratitude attitude. You know, it's very hard to covet when you're constantly thankful to God for what you have. Be thankful always. Paul's always talked about that. You're more likely to be content if you're thankful. And then I'm going to give you now, if you're taking note, real quick, four practical applications. We'll talk about some money matters here in terms of being content, the pursuit of contentment. Here's the first one. This is groundbreaking. This is actually very scientific. This is incredible. Spend less than you make. 
I know. It's wild, wacky stuff today. Spend less than you make. Because if you don't, you're going to go into a lot of debt. And debt is a yoke, a burden. There are emergency situations where you can't help that. But by and large, with your disposable income, spend less than you make. Number two, give or save what's left over. Because again, you can only have so much. You can only use so much. In fact, in this text later toward the end of the chapter of our text, 1 Timothy 6.18, Paul says there, do good, be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves. Christians would do that as a good foundation for the future so you can take hold of which is truly life. In fact, I want you to go to Luke chapter 12 for a moment. Hang in there, Luke chapter 12. And you're going to see a couple of interesting comments from the Lord on this idea of contentment, how it leads to the practical idea of giving. Verse 33, the Lord told his disciples, all those listening, sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Simply says, do godly things with your money because you're not going to take your money and go anywhere with it here at the end of the day, which goes to my third practical application. Don't buy what you don't need or can't use. Don't buy what you don't need or can't use. The same chapter, the Lord talked about great parable. Luke 12, verse 16, he talks about a rich man that produced plentifully. And the man thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. This is like the guy with the fisherman in the story I gave you in the introduction. And he said, I'll do this. I'll, I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And then I'll store all my grains and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. And God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Don't you hate that when you rack your brains to make a whole lot of money, and you get all this money, and then like you die the same night? I hate when that happens. That's just food for thought. That's all I'm about here. And listen, I also want you to not be in over extremes. I mean, God gives us all things richly to enjoy. This chapter of our text says, okay, you can have fun. Ecclesiastes 5.19, Solomon said, God has given us wealth and possession to enjoy as a gift. It is. Just beware of the trap of the disease. The disease is the love of money, which is the root of all kinds of evil. And lastly, don't gamble with your money. Oh, you know, I can play lotto and Powerball, man, because it's not like in the Bible. I look in the back of the Bible in my concordance, I don't see the word lotto. So I guess God doesn't speak to that. Okay, you don't have to be a Bible genius here, all right? Gambling is not working for money, so it defies the very principle of working for money, and we'll talk about work in our next message in this series next time. Gamble is, 
Gambling's based on random chance, and it's just not a wise use of your resources, and the Proverbs are chock full of that. Benjamin Franklin, one of our founding fathers, I'm not sure he was a Christian or not, but he did say a very Christian kind of thing once. He said, contentment makes poor men rich, discontent makes rich men poor. He was right on with that. There's no room for get-rich-quick schemes in biblical stewardship. It's about wisdom and balance. It's about finding the happy medium between comfort and then doing your part to advance the kingdom, all right? So now, we're talking about money, ROI, return on investment. What's the payoff here? Can you love God more than money and be paid off or rewarded for it? Of course you can. And in fact, in the rich young ruler story of Luke 18, I'm just going to give you the end of that story so you get it. Because after the rich young ruler walks away and Jesus says how hard it is for a rich man to be, a rich woman to be in the kingdom, they said to him, those who heard it said to Jesus, then who can be saved? Because that was the original context of the whole story. But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. You see how that ties into my point, that contentment is spiritual? It's only possible if you're with God. And Peter said, see, we've left our homes and followed you. I love Peter. He was always just straightforward. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. What a promise that is. What a reward. It's not what you have, people, that makes for enjoyment in this life. The wise person understands contentment is not, have re- not having everything you want, but enjoying everything that you have. What do we have that's more valuable, that's better than anything else in the universe? I'm going to close with this quick little story, and you'll get it. Legend has it there was this wealthy merchant, and he was visiting Paul. He wanted to see Paul during the day that he had heard about Paul the Apostle. He became fascinated with Paul. He wanted to visit him. So he's going through Rome, and he gets in touch with Timothy, of course. And Timothy arranges a meeting for this rich man and Paul in prison. And then stepping inside the cell, this merchant, he's surprised to find that Paul's looking really old, frail, you know. He'd really been through life. But he also, on the other hand, at once he felt the strength, kind of the magnetism and the, and the satisfaction, the serenity that this man had who relied on Christ. And they talked for a while, and then finally the merchant guy leaves. Outside the cell, he asked Timothy this question. What's the secret of this man's power. I've never seen anything like it before. And Timothy replied, did you not guess? Paul is in love. The merchant kind of looked like confused. Said in love. Said, yeah. Timothy said that. Paul is in love with Jesus Christ. And the merchant looked even more confused. Is that all? Really? And Timothy just smiled and replied and said, That is everything. That is everything. It really is. That's the secret of satisfaction, is to be so captivated by Christ 
as to love him as your sovereign Savior, Lord, provider, whom you submit to, to whom you serve, and the one you trust in every situation. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would give us, give me the grace to be content with what you give to me. We should all pray that. In fact, no more than that, let us all rejoice in all you send, for it is your choice. We thank you for the provision that you make for us each and every day. Thank you for your providence working in our lives. Thank you for the purposes and the promises that you have before us, Lord. You're so good to us. That not only do you supply us all of our needs in glory in Christ Jesus, but so often what we, wa- what we want and don't deserve. Thank you for your provision. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. And Lord, my prayer is that someone, one or more people in this room today and those that will be listening on the internet later, Lord God, if they don't have the most valuable, beautiful thing in the whole world, which is the person of Jesus Christ, and all the abundant joy and peace and grace that he brings, they would cry out for him today. They would confess they are sinners in need of forgiveness, that they would turn to you and trust in Jesus alone, in faith alone, not having to do anything else, but just believe and trust in you for who you are and what you did for sinners, which is die on a cross to pay the penalty, to make the payment for all the sins that they have committed that have offended you in breaking your law for all these years. I pray you'll make that happen today, Lord. Maybe someone will come forward and want to pray with us about that or in the fellowship time, talk to us about that so we can lead them into into the knowledge and the wisdom of that grace, that saving grace of Christ. Or they'll want to connect with us later, maybe for a cup of coffee or a bite to eat and to talk more about the kingdom, to talk more about Jesus because he's there for us, Father. Draw us near to you, Lord, that you would draw near to us. Thank you, Lord, for the secret of satisfaction and the heart of contentment we can have because it's contentment in you. In Jesus' name, all God's people said. Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on our ministry, please visit our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's christcomchurch.org.